The following sermon is from Christ Church Port Orange. For more information, find us online at joinwithjesus.org. Thanks for listening. All right, John chapter 15. Open your Bible. John chapter 15. We're in week two of our DNA series. Um, I don't know if you know this or not, but DNA literally makes up the building blocks of all life on earth. If it's alive, it has DNA. Do you know that? Everything is built with DNA. It's the way God chose to fashion life as it exists on earth. But what you may not know is the incredible extent that God has gone to to create a physical environment in space-time so that he could bring us to be and dwell with us forever. Uh, Recently, a few years ago actually now, I read a book called The Goldilocks Enigma. I would love for you to read this book if any of you science nerds are out there. But the author uh, shows us mathematically and scientifically how there is 0% chance that there are any other planets like Earth in the universe. And I don't know if you know this or not, but without Earth as it is, life simply cannot exist in the universe at all in any form, and not the form that we experience can be reproduced anywhere else. And he goes through these different components that show us that. Do you know that we are in the only type of galaxy that can have human life? Of all the galaxies in the universe, only ours can have life in it. We're in the right kind of galaxy. Did you know you have to be exactly the right distance from the right kind of star? There's a little tiny sliver of space in a particular orbit around a particular size star that allows for life to develop and to exist. And we just happen to be on a planet that's the exact distance from the exact size star for that to take place. Did you know that the planets around us are not arbitrary and without the planets that we are set in motion with, life on Earth could not exist? And in fact, you can have no life without a moon that creates a tidal surge on the planet. And so if we did not have a moon orbiting our Earth, there would be no human life on Earth. It gets bigger and bigger Uh, when you start to understand mathematically what has to happen for us to have a place to live, the size of our planet matters. If the earth was bigger or smaller, life would not exist. And not only that, but we have to have not only an atmosphere, but a certain amount of metallic substance in our planet to create the type of solar shield that keeps us from being burned up by radiation constantly. And so the composition of our planet is what allows for human life. And then lastly, I don't know if you know this or not, but we're inside of a window of time in our universe that that human life can exist. It's a big window. It's 4.6 billion years. It's kind of a long time. But on the grand scheme of things, outside of the window of time that we exist in, there is no life on earth. And I used to be one of those people that thought there's probably 1,000 to 10,000 other inhabitable planets, you know, because I watched Space Odyssey and Star Trek. And so I assumed that that was the case. But the reality is, is that we live on a statistically impossible planet and we exist comprised of pieces that we can look at that make us uniquely us. Isn't that amazing? And it should blow your mind. And I could give you the math. I'm not going to bore you with that, but look into it uh, to see how much effort God went to to make a place where he could dwell with us forever. This is, in, this is incredible. And you have to understand this as you look into the scripture story. 
What I want to do today is I want to give you three words that encapsulate everything that we're trying to get done here at Christ Church. And those three words are joined with Jesus. Uh, they're so important to us that we put them on the sign. They're out there. You saw them when you came in. Christ Church joined with Jesus. Now, I grew up in a Reformed Baptist church, and I was raised as a Calvinist. You don't have to raise your hand if you're a Calvinist. It's predestined that you don't. <laughs> Too soon? You guys aren't awake yet? You don't have enough coffee for my theology jokes? So I was, raised, I was raised a Calvinist and I assumed that that's what was true and all there really was. And then in my exposure to broader Christianity, I started to bump into people of all different sorts and theological bents and with different phrases and different ideas about God and grace and salvation than I had. And so over the course of my pastoral ministry and being a student of the word, just as a disciple of Jesus for over 20 years, um, I've learned a lot about a lot of things and a lot of people. And I've had to ask myself hard questions about theology to say, do the things that I believe really reflect the nature and character of the person revealed to us in the pages of scripture? And is my framework limiting my experience and understanding of God? And what I found was through, I mean, rigorous study. If you guys know me, I have an insatiable curiosity about all things, which is why I read books like The Goldilocks Enigma. But Nothing fascinates me more than the person of God. And no place is God more fully manifest or expressed than in the human, Jesus, the God-man. And he is the fascination of my life. And you will find that he can become yours as well. What I learned from walking with Jesus relationally, knowing him, talking to him, praying to him, studying him, learning from him, and from learning everything the scriptures have to say from Genesis to Revelation is that there is a predominant and unifying theme that is central to the scriptures. And when you understand that with Jesus at the center of it, it gives you a lens by which to understand everything that you read in here and it makes cohesive sense. One of the challenges I had as a Calvinist was that there's all sorts of things that didn't make logical sense when you came to a conclusion about a theological nuance. And then there was a scripture that appeared to say the exact opposite of that. And then we jumped through hoops to make sense of those verses. And so that was what the challenge was. Now, Calvinism and John Calvin have added much to Protestant Christianity and to evangelicalism. Most of you don't understand how grateful we should be to the thought of the reformers. So I'm not here to dog anybody. But what I want to do for you is, like I said last week, put Jesus at the center. Can I get amen? And then I want you to understand how it's not just knowing that Jesus is at the center, but aligning your life in a relationship with him that not only helps you understand everything God has revealed to us in scripture, but also to experience and benefit from who God is to you and in you and that he is able to work through you. This is the great adventure. And this is what I'm excited about this morning. And so John chapter 15, John chapter 15. I couldn't think of a better place to launch from, but um, there's a thousand places. But this was the passage that caught my attention and kept pulling me back again and again and again. It's John chapter 15. Let's read verses one to five. Jesus says, I am the true vine. And my father is the vine dresser. 
or the husbandmen, some of your translations may say. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me. Somebody say, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. God, we thank you for your word that has been read in our hearing. God, we thank you that it has the power to transform. God, I pray this morning that you would open our eyes to see Jesus, to understand these words and to respond to them appropriately. God, I pray that each of us would come to know what it means to be in Christ, to be joined with Jesus and what this means for our everyday experience, for our relationship with you, for the purpose that you have us on this planet for in this generation. And God, I pray especially for anyone in my hearing that does not know you truly and really, who has not experienced the salvation that you offer by grace and through faith. I pray, God, that they would hear your voice calling them, that this good news about Jesus would make itself at home in their hearts, and that you would expand the reach of your kingdom on earth. God, we're eager to receive every good thing you have for us this morning. And so we just confess that our minds are alert, that our hearts are hungry, and we invite you to speak directly to us. Give us ears to hear in Jesus' name. All God's people said, amen. A um, couple of the things that I noticed early as a pastor, and I was reflecting because it was actually 11 years ago this week that I got online and registered the domain name joinedwithjesus.org. At the time, I was pastoring a church called Sovereign Grace Church, a Reformed Baptist church. And I got it in my head that there was something that we were missing and that something was a right understanding and experience of Jesus himself. Now, I was a little vulnerable with you last week and that spooked some people. Got some letters in the mail. I got some people that were giving me the, the stink eye. It's okay, it's totally fine. Uh, if you hang out at Christ Church, you're gonna get real all the time. Do you know that? And when I'm not on stage, if you talk to Tiffany and I, it gets more real, okay? So buckle up and get comfortable. The beautiful thing about that is that you can be really you too. So I'm gonna be really, really me. So I, I grew up in a Christian home. My dad's here. He, 
He got saved after I was born. He and, he and my mom raised us in a Christian home, went to church, read the scriptures. And so I was exposed to Christianity. And that in that environment, kind of ended up in that kind of Calvinistic environment. And as I started pursuing pastoral ministry, kind of rigorously studying all of these doctrines, that's something that uh, the Reformed Church is known for, is a rigorous intellectual approach to the scriptures and theology and doctrine. And so that, that jumped right into my insatiable curiosity. And so I learned more and more and more and more and more. And when I went to the, the pastor's college that I went to for seminary, I was exposed to a broader reform movements and Protestants that thought differently than even us, the Lutherans and uh, some Presbyterians who baptized infants and had different polity. And so I was like, why are they doing that? I want to understand. And then broader evangelicalism and word of faith movements and dispensationals. If you were raised a fearing taking a shower and you got out and everybody was gone and you thought the rapture had come, that was dispensationalism, by the way. There's a whole swath of people who were, who were raised on left behind. And, and so as I started understanding all these nuances of theology and disagreements and debates, uh, there was a, a desire in me to, to really have a unified scripture. I read a book recently that was basically saying, we need to make church irresistible so everybody comes back. And also the Old Testament is somewhat irrelevant, so don't bother getting into it on Sunday mornings. And I went, no! It's, it's all one story, do you know it? And it's all about the same person. And it's all for every single one of us. I want you to read your Bible. I want you to look at passages and go, what in the world does this mean? And then work at it until you find out. But I want to also give you the interpretive key and the lens that I use and that you will find yourself exposed to if you remain at Christ Church and decide to be a part of Christ Church. I want to be really upfront about that. We don't have a 16-week membership class where we go into all the nuances of theology. And as I mentioned last week, you're going to find people who think very differently than you, who come from different backgrounds, different traditions, and have different theological constructs. And that is okay with us. And we do that on purpose. So get comfortable with that. But I also want you to know that Jesus is at the center of everything and what he presents about himself is that he wants you to be vitally and mystically, spiritually and relationally connected to him and growing in your understanding and experience of that relationship so that it morphs and change your entire life. And I want nothing less than that for you. What I also saw as I began to look at the whole Bible through the lens of the believer's union with Christ, which is the theological way of describing it, I like join with Jesus better. But the believer's union with Christ is it gave me a framework to hold on to all sorts of different ways that God interacted with his people throughout history. It helped me to understand how God was the God of Israel and who he was as creator and what the exile was about and uh, what happened in the New Testament with Gentiles and Jews and how the church is what it is and how do we understand the, the Roman church and the Eastern church and this evangelical thing that's happening and Mormonism and Jehovah's Witnesses and where did all this come from? And it, it gave me a framework to be able to interpret that. But it also began to transform my own personal experience. The environment that I grew up in was more of a perfection is more important than progress. And so there was a certain standard by which you had to appear, at least, in order to be accepted by other people. Now, that was what I would call relational legalism. And you can be in a church that knows the gospel and is not a legalistic church, 
as it relates to God. And so God doesn't expect anything from you, demand anything from you. There's nothing you can do to gain God's favor. You can hear that from the pulpit, and yet you can be treated by other people as though everything you say matters to them, whether you're accepted or not. Everything you do, how you dress, how you live your life, all the things you say, and it creates around you a little bubble of projection where you're trying to be all the things that everybody expects of you all the time. But on the inside, you're a fraud. You're not safe to be you. You're not safe to share your struggles. And even into my adulthood, I found myself locked down and struggling with shame, embarrassment, an unwillingness to even, in my closest relationships, reveal the things that really tempted me and were concerns, the things that I wanted to overcome. And when you lock yourself in shame, you, you will never be free. You will always be relying on your own ability and impulse and your own resolve, and you will find yourself cyclically failing in the same way over and over and over and over again. And I am disheartened to know that there are churches all over the world who have created this picture of what it looks like to be mature, only to find so many people hiding out in there so that everybody else thinks that they're fine when they're not. Do you know that? You don't have to be afraid to nod your head in here (laughs) because we know who we are. And I didn't begin to experience freedom and transformation until I began to walk with a Jesus who accepts me exactly as I am, who knows exactly who I am, who doesn't leverage anything against me, who doesn't hold it against me, and who speaks to me the words of who he has made me to be, who he says I am in him, and not the failure of a human being I know myself to be by my actions. And so as I started reading the scriptures, I noticed that there was these three components of our union with Christ that came up again and again and again and always very close to each other. And they are these three words. So if you're a note taker, you want to write these down. I promise if you hang out on Sunday mornings, you'll hear them again. But here they are. Identity, purpose, and relationship. Identity, purpose, and relationship. So much of what the Bible has to say about Jesus and about our being joined with Jesus is described to us at the level of identity. Somebody say identity. Um, and this is super important. And one of the reasons I'm re-preaching this series now and not just directing you to the 2017 version is that since 2017, our culture has hijacked the concept of identity to manipulate and control you. I'll give you a story I've... Uh, I'm leading the youth group, middle and high school students, and there was a young girl who started coming to our youth group, and uh, she looked like and dressed like a boy. And I knew her name was a feminine name, and her mother introduced her as her, but there was some, some conversation about whether she wanted to be he or she, him or her, and what her pronouns were. Now, this is very c- common outside of the church, but it was some of my first experience of it. And so, because I told you who we are, everybody's welcome. It doesn't matter if you are gender confused or same-sex attracted or whatever's going on in your life. You are a human that God made, and I have good news for you that God wants to love you forever. And he made a home for you with people like us, and so you come right on in. And so there's no one ever ostracized for who they are or where they're at, ever. Do you know that? But some conversations came out about homosexuality, and this is with a middle school student. And she said, I am gay. This is what she said. And I said, gay is not something you are. It is something you do. And she said, what? 
I said, gay is not something you are. Gay is something that you do. Now, same-sex attraction is something that you feel, but gay is something that you do. And so it's not an identity. She said, no, no, it is an identity. And my question for her was, who told you that? Who told you that? Where did that concept come from? But here's the reality is, all throughout our culture, there is an agenda being pushed that's supposed to tell you who you are. And that who you are is as fluid and flexible as every feeling or fear that you have. And the, the push is, you need to go explore everything you think, feel, that comes to you, question that's asked of you, so that you can determine who you are based on what your internal response to that is, and then that becomes the thing you are. Those become the people you're a part of. That dictates your future. And that reality, that force, is now being hijacked to polarize and to divide people into traits based on what become immutable characteristics. Do you know this? And so there, there are, the, the, the more nuanced and small the categories that people can become, the easier it is to divide, ostracize, and control. And this is tragic, brothers and sisters. The reality of the Christian gospel is not simply that, that Jesus died on a cross so that your sins can be forgiven and so you can go to heaven one day. That is a drastic oversimplification. The reality is God has expressed himself by becoming one of us so that in a relationship with him through faith, we can become temples of his Holy Spirit and we can begin to be not who we feel we are, but who he says we are. And so our identity, again and again and again in the scriptures, is in Christ. If you, there's one slide up here that I have, some, some New Testament examples of the centrality of this theme of the believer's union with Christ. Look at this. Do you know there's 89 verses in the New Testament that contain the phrase, in Christ? Some of you who know your Bible will start to think through all of these phrases. You, oh yeah, in Christ, in him, in the Lord, in me, Jesus saying, through him, through Jesus, with Christ, in Jesus, in him we have, through Christ, in him you, with Jesus, Christ in you. These, these passages abound because the central theme for the New Testament is that everyone who's put their faith in Jesus is now in him. I graduated with my bachelor's degree this year. I went back and got it. I wanted to get it before I was 40 and then all of a sudden I was 40. I was like, I better do this quickly. Um, and for a while, I was in school. How many of y'all are in school? Raise your hand. Come on. I'm in school right now. I'm in school. I'm in school. I am not in school. Praise him. I'm so glad to not be in school. But for a while, I was in school. And being in school changed my life a lot. It made me study. It made me take tests. It made me read. It made me think about things I didn't feel like thinking about, like inventory management. Talk about the most boring thing in the world, inventory management. Some of you are like, I like inventory management. <laughs> this guy's a jerk, you know? I hate inventory management, and I will never read another book about it. Never, <laughs> never again. Accounting, fin accounting for non-finance, the worst class ever. And I worked really hard for my B, okay? And I, I thought a certain way. My, my, my mind was in a track. I was up at certain hours. I was staying up late to write papers. I was accessing different parts of, of my brain and my personality. My life changed because I was in school. But too many Christians pray a prayer, walk forward, put their hand up to receive Christ, and then their life doesn't change at all because they have no idea what it means to be in Christ. 
The reality is, is that when you receive God's gift of salvation, you, you enter into him and him in you. And the call is stay there and learn what it means to be in Christ. And it begins to reshape everything. Do you know that? I'm gonna get into this in great detail in our next sermon series. We're gonna, we're gonna apply it to time and money and sex and all the things that matter to human beings. And we're gonna talk about it in detail. So buckle up. But I want you guys to understand that you need to begin to live a life that is characterized by who God says you are. Not who CNN says you are. Not who the public school system says you are. Not even what your own fears and feelings say you are. You know how wrong you are about so many things? Take your cues from the guy who made you. Who knows what it looks like for you to have your best life ever, okay? Well, my, my, my early years were characterized by terrible mistakes that started with me trying to find the best life for me. I'll give you an example on an identity level. So uh, I went through some phases in middle school like all of us do. I went through a punk rock phase uh, where I went to like punk rock concerts. I learned what, um, how scary mosh pits are. That was interesting. It's like, yeah, I'm, I feel angry and violent. I'm 13. I'm going to go in that crowd of people. And I got in there and I was like, get me out of here. I'm scared. I'm going to get trampled by this mob. And everybody's doing this ah, loud music. I was playing bass and 30 second notes. So mad right now. Ah. Went through that whole thing. And um, just headaches all the time. And then uh, some of those guys also skateboarded. So I started skateboarding. I loved skateboarding. I was ollieing down stairs and waxing up curbs and, and being chased by the police. It was great. It was a great little season. Broke my elbow and I did stop doing that. Uh, and then I found my tribe. It was surfers. I was like, these people, they are the most awesome humans on the planet. They all care about only one thing, uh, surfing. That was it. And I remember um, it was easy. When you're, a, when you're a teenager, being a surfer is easy because you have a very simple and small life. You do school and then you surf when the waves are good and when the waves are not good, you wish you were surfing. You just stare at small waves. <laughs> and I, but I started to identify with being a surfer as the primary characteristic by which I wanted to be known and by which I saw myself. And I couldn't imagine a world in which I would not surf every day. I mean, I would go years. I went years in my teens where I surfed every day, even if there was no waves. A bunch of us from the street we lived on, we would go New Year's Day as was like our superstition. If we don't surf on New Year's Day, we're not gonna get any waves that are this year. And so we, well, one New Year's, it was like 33 degrees outside. We were drinking hot coffee with bourbon. We were trying to like warm our bodies with our wetsuits. The waves were this big. The wind was blowing out of the north at 40 miles an hour. We all went out anyway. What kind of crazy people are we? But that's who I was. And I remember seeing guys who were 40, they'd roll up with their little dad bod in their minivan, and they'd pull out this dusty old board that hadn't been out in seven months, and they'd be putting on their suit with a big tear in the side and paddling out. <sighs> and I remember thinking, like, I will never be that guy. Never. <laughs> never. The only thing was is that guy loved his wife and his children, and surfing was not the most important thing to him, and it was a hobby for exercise, which he didn't do very often, <laughs> and not a lifestyle that's directed every single decision. Now, when I was a surfer, there was external evidence to the reality. Look, at, here's a picture of me. I think it's up there. Did I, write, did I put it in there? Yeah. I had long blonde hair, red skin, red eyeballs, because I was like exposed to salt water and sun, you know, 
12 hours a day. I was working construction. And so if you saw that guy, you'd be like, yep, surfer, right? I don't look like that now. Because I don't make decisions based on how good the waves are. I'd like to. It's hard for me to go to work when the waves are good. I will be honest with you. If I look at Magic Seaweed and I look at the cam and I go, oh my, it's four to five feet in offshore winds right now and the tide is perfect. I want to quit my job. I do. I do. I do. And sometimes I want to be like, I'm going surfing to my family. And, you know, I'm like, she'll forgive me. You know, I, I, would, I, would, I would live there. But here's the deal. That's not who I am. But being your pastor is not who I am either. Because I don't know how long this, I'm, I'm going to be doing this. I could get throat cancer and not be able to speak ever again tomorrow. I have no idea. This is not who I am. This is what I do. It's something God's called me to do. It's a task. It's a calling. I'm going to do it. I love doing it, but this is not who I am. But you know who I am? I am a child of God, adopted into his family, loved by him and protected, watched over constantly. I'm beloved. I am forgiven. There is nothing in my life that God cannot or will not forgive me of as long as I bring it to him. I am cleansed, redeemed. I'm bought. Do you know that? I essentially pawned myself to my own sinful desires and found myself in, in slavery. But I was redeemed, set free. I'm restored. I have a wholeness about me that did not come from me that I could never achieve. I am led. Do you know that? I am led. When I was the leader of my life, I made horrible decisions. But today, I don't know everywhere that I'm going, but I got a set of shoulders in front of me, and his name is Jesus. And so I can walk into all sorts of new and scary situations knowing that someone's gone before me and is leading me through it and is with me, no matter how deep and dark the valley. See, everything about my experience as a human comes back to the reality that I am joined with Jesus. I am who he says that I am. Not who you say that I am. When I, when I was a young pastor, I was so, I had so much fear of man. I cared so much about what people thought of me. I would do anything anybody asked just for their approval. It was terrible. It was very busy. And let me tell you something. If you want to fail at something, try to please everyone, Okay. It is a horrible way to live. But here, here, here's the reality. In, in, even as much as you, you all contribute to Christ Church, which allows us to have a budget, which allows us to pay our staff, and so I can feel like you are all my bosses. Some days I feel like I have 700 bosses just waiting for the phone to ring. Hey, it's one of your bosses. Oh, gosh. But the reality is, is I don't work for you. I, I work for him. I got one boss and he's the one I report to. He's the only one who I actually care what he thinks of me. And so I got to do what he tells me to do. And it's amazing that suddenly releases me from needing to please you by giving you what you think you need from me. But it also allows me to be for you what God actually needs me to be for you. And so it's better for me and it's better for you. See, this is what it means. And so you're going to spend your life. I don't expect to uh, get this all through all of our heads in one sermon. I don't. And it's only one of my points. But we need to spend our lives learning what it means to be joined with Jesus and how that affects our identity. Some of you have not got past your labels. Divorced, addicted, abandoned, betrayed, rejected, afraid, sick. 
And those are the things that define you. Some of us, it's success or your job or your children or your spouse. Some of you would not know how to be you without your spouse. Some of you, the only thing you are is who you are to your children. This is why when your kids grow up and move out, you have an identity crisis because you don't know who you are without them. There's so many good and dangerous things that we can orient our life around and define ourselves by that are not who God says we should. But you will find that you will never be freer and happier and live a fuller whole life when you begin to be and know yourself to be who God says you are. And so as you walk every day in this journey with Jesus, in a conversation with him, I start my conversation every day, started at 5.01 this morning. Good morning, boss. What are we gonna do today? Because I am who he says I am. And so this is a lifelong pursuit. And it leads to the second word, which is purpose. Somebody say purpose. Purpose. Do you know that your life has a purpose? It does. It is not pointless. You're not here on accident. I don't care how many evolutionary biologists tell you that, oh, the reason we have this Goldilocks enigma is because this planet just happens to be the planet that is, and it happens to have got here by the things that did happen. And it's just a statistical anomaly, and they were here, and then we're not going to be here. And so your life is essentially meaningless. But they still go home and love their wife and pet their dog. And they go to work and they raise their children, completely inconsistent with the atheistic ideology. Why? All of us are living, seeking purpose. Every single one of us. It's what motivates people to start small businesses. It's what makes people who've been divorced four times get married again. Because what am I here for? It's what drives each of us to save up money to do something. All of us are driven by a desire to live a meaningful life, even if that meaningful life is just surfing again and 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 again until you die of skin cancer and have alienated all of your relationships, which is where that ends, by the way. You see, all of us are in search of a purpose, but you won't know why you're here until you know who you are. And so you will find as you look to the scriptures that there is a connection that you have with Jesus that begins to determine who you are, who God says you are, whether you are a man or a woman, even if you don't feel like one or the other in particular, whether you are called to be single or married, whether you are called to have children and raise them, whether you are called to a certain vocation. And so your identity influences your purpose. But I'm here to tell you, every single one of you has a unique purpose that's a part of God's big mission. Every single one of you. We're gonna get to this in part four, mobilize every member. We're not trying to be the church that does everything for everyone, hosts every type of event and does all the ministries and has the long checklist of ways you can get involved. No, you know what our strategy is? You, you are our strategy. It's getting you to be who God made you to be and then getting you to engage with the mission that God has created you for. And so you have a purpose. I want you to find it. And we're gonna talk way more about that. But so many of us are finding our identity by our purpose. So many of us identify, and this is big with men too. With women, it's more relational. It seems to be like your husband or your children or some relationships. Maybe it's your cat. I don't know. For men, it's what we do. It's one of the first things when men meet each other. How you doing? What's your name? What do you do? It's a very masculine thing, right? What do you do? That's who you are. It begins to be who you are. This is why retirement turns so many guys into a crazy person. I don't know how many wives are like, yeah, my husband's home. Get out of the house. Four days after retirement, you're like, leave. Get a hobby. Go to the garage. Do something different. 
You are trouble on wheels. Why? Because he doesn't know how to be him without that job. That's who he was for 40 years, and now he doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what he likes or what he wants to do because your purpose doesn't define you, but your identity does inform your purpose. And this is why if you are still breathing, God still has work for you to do. It's not your job. It's not the thing that you thought was going to give you the fulfillment of the success of the, the people around you or, the, or the, you climb the ladder or whatever. None of that stuff is real. None of it matters. But what God wants to do in you and through you and whatever he's called you to do, that is where your purpose exists. And so we're going to explore that more and more. And then lastly, uh, relationships. Somebody say relationships. Relationships. You see, God meant us, us to do this together. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm actually here, because seven years ago, right before we started Christ Church, I wanted to quit being a pastor. And if I'm honest, I want to quit being a Christian because they were all terrible people and they treated me like total garbage. That's how I felt. That wasn't true, but that's how I felt. Any of you ever felt that way? Don't raise your hand. <laughs> I really was ready. I remember when I first did this series, um, the first time I wrote it, and it, it's changed a lot. This is a lot different than the other ones. In fact, if you want more of that kind of theological uh, underpinning for all this, you can go listen to the 2017 version. I spent a lot of time trying to convince you that that's the truth from the Bible, which is a worthwhile endeavor, but not for this morning. Um, but I remember it doing one of these messages, and um, I started it with the, um, is this whole thing worth it? I sounded so cynical. I was like 20 or 33 years old. I'm like, is this whole church thing worth it? I'm like, oh, you sound like a haggard old man. What happened to you? And, um, and I, I referenced the Bourne series. You guys watch the Jason Bourne movies? No, yes. Can we talk about movies in church? Yeah, I like them. Remember in the Bourne Identity, which is the best of the series and one of my favorite movies of all time, um, Jason Bourne, who doesn't, he has amnesia, doesn't know who he is, and he's this you know, elite killing machine that's made by the government, and he's part of this Treadstone operation, but he doesn't know any of this, and everyone's trying to kill him because he's the most dangerous asset, and so they're after him, and one of the other killers is coming after him, and he's, Jason Bourne's too good for this guy, and he, he, Clive Owens is the character that plays him, and so Jason gets this shotgun that he finds in a house, and he chases the guy down in the field, and he's got this big long-range rifle, and he's trying to take him out, and he sneaks up on him, and bam, he shoots him in the arm with the rifle, and bam, in the other arm, and he's laying there bleeding out, and he goes like, Bourne's like, what is Treadstone? Trying to interrogate him and get all his questions, and the guy just looks at himself, and he's dying in this field, and he goes, look what they make you give. And then he dies. And I was like, that's how I feel. That's how I feel about pastoral ministry. Look what they make you give. Just bleed out. Nobody cares. They just ask you angry questions. That's how I felt, really. That was like my opener for the sermon. You're like, wow, it's gotten better since then. It really has. And I was asking myself, it's like, is this whole thing even worth it? Like you give and you give and you give and you give. And people attack you and tear you down and criticize you for everything that you're trying to do and you get abandoned and you go, is it worth it? And it can make you just want to like never have relationships ever again. You're like, I'm going to pick three friends and everybody else unfriended, not on Facebook either, in real life, you know? Send them a voicemail. I felt like that. But here's the, here's the thing. God actually made us for each other. You see, God made us for him, but in Christ, we were actually made for each other. And I can tell you seven years later, I can look around this room to people who have changed my life just by being there for me. Maybe you don't even know the ways that you've 
encouraged Tiffany and I, the way that you've supported what we're trying to do here, the way that I've seen God move in your life, and it gives me hope. I cannot tell you how meaningful it is to be a part of a church family, imperfect as we are, messy as it is, to pray for each other when we're going through tragedy, to stand with each other, to make meals, and and to, to go to God in prayer over things that are out of our control, to celebrate the highs, the new babies and the marriages and the promotions, and to come alongside each other in the in the sickness and the death and the tragedy. We need each other, brothers and sisters. We do. Now we are trouble on wheels, I will give you that. And it's hard and it's bumpy. But God designed it to work this way. He, he wanted this to happen. This is why I'm here. I am here and not giving up on church because we need each other, that God made us for each other. We're supposed to be, in fact, the Bible gives us at least seven illustrations that I can find that describe both this intimate connection with Jesus and the fact that we are a part of something that's bigger than ourselves. Think, think about these seven for a second. A flock, we talked about that in the Christmas series from Psalm 23. You know, we are a flock you are not a lone sheep. Do you know that? You get out of the fold and that's a bad day for you, okay? <laughs> you're, a part, you're a part of something. That's where your identity, your, your identity as a sheep comes from being a part of something bigger. Your identity as a follower is I need other people around me. I need them to stoke the fires of my faith. I need them to pray for me, encourage me, and strengthen me, and be a friend, be a person I can tell my deepest, darkest secrets to. That's not for everybody, by the way. That's just for a little group of people, but I need those people in my life. The scriptures give us a picture of a temple. There was God dwelt with his people in the tabernacle and a tent in the wilderness and then the, in Solomon's temple and then in the second temple. And, and now there is no temple. Why? Because we are the temple. We have been atoned for, cleansed and forgiven. And now we believers in Jesus are the temple of the living God by the Holy Spirit. Do you know that? Something unique happens when we gather together. I don't know if you're perceptive of it or not, but when we get together, we put our faith together, we start to look differently. We're like, my, my daughters have those, um, those sequin shirts. I don't know, you guys have those little shiny sequin shirts? Any of you have little daughters, granddaughters? It's like a pineapple. Molly was wearing a pineapple bathing suit with the little sequins on it. And she was like, silver, gold, silver, gold. And you're like that, you're like one of those little sequins. One of those little sequins, it can be lost on the ground. You'll never see it. Maybe you walk by it and it catches the sun just right for a second. There's a little flicker. But you put all those sequins together and you can, you can reflect the sun and turn that thing into a signal because of how bright it becomes. And you're, you're no different. You're made to be a part of something bigger. The scripture says that we're on Christ being stacked as living stones built together, strengthened, and a household for God where other people who don't know God are gonna come into our gatherings and experience his presence because we all brought our faith to church. Do you know that? We're a flock, we're a temple, we're a city. We're a city. We are a city. I love traveling and I love going to cities, new cities, because I like restaurants and culture and new experiences and cityscapes and museums and, and, and learning new things and mostly food. And now, and now, like some of the um, some of the cities I intended to travel to are now Kovic Stand, USA. Like, why bother going there? Everything's shut down. Everybody's masked up, and nobody wants to talk to you. Like, up? Oh, guess I'm not going there. Because what makes a city is not its skyscape. It's not its restaurants. It's not its buildings. It's not its traffic patterns. It's the people who are there, isn't it? If you take the people out of a town, what are you left with? A ghost town. And so we are a city. God is building 
a lasting city. This is what we've been called to be a part of. This is where this whole thing culminates when God brings all of his people to a certain place on a perfectly crafted earth where he can dwell with us forever. We are a family. Do you know that? We are a family. We are all weird cousins. I have like 40-something cousins on my dad's side. First cousins, a lot of cousins. And um, sometimes they look at us and I'm like, how, how are we related? Doesn't make sense. I feel like that with my siblings though too, so I shouldn't say too much about that. I was the only extrovert growing up, all introverts. Six introverts, one extrovert. It was very odd for me. I'll tell you the long story sometime. But I feel like that with church. Sometimes we go, I just don't feel like I fit in. You fit in. You're going to be great, okay? Because we're a family. And if you feel like you don't fit in, a lot of us feel like that a lot of the time, including myself, okay? So you fit in, and we want you here. You're part of the family. And so welcome to the table. This is what God's doing. These get more and more intimate, more and more connected. You know that over and over and over again, the, the church of Jesus is called the bride of Christ? Think about more intimate union, a oneness. Abide in me and I in you. God is building a people for himself and the whole thing culminates in Revelation as a wedding feast when there's a bride cleansed and made beautiful in a pure white garment presented to a bridegroom and a a love story culminates and a oneness exists forever. I know this analogy makes some, some people uncomfortable, guys especially, they're like, I'm nobody's bride, not me. I'm a man's man. Of course you are, but the church is pictured as a bride and Jesus is the groom and this is the type of intimate connection that he wants you to have. This is where you're gonna learn who you are. I'm not the same person that I would be without my wife. We'll celebrate our 20th anniversary this year and I loathe the thought of the human being I would be without her. I'm a different person because of the connection that we have, the relationship we share, and the way that we have helped shape and change each other to conform to the image of Christ. And I thank God for that, and I want everybody to have that, but we are a part of that as well. He gets even more intimate than a bride and a groom. Uh, Jesus calls himself the head, and we are the body. So much so does he want us to be connected to him, joined with him, that he becomes the signal center for every bit of our movement. And while fingers and eyeballs and toes and ears are very different, and we are all very different, every one of us is essential. Every one of us matters to God. And he is, he is specifically aware of our pain and our purpose, and he's the one that's going to walk in it. And so when you ask yourself, and maybe you're here and you're in the de-churched crowd, I've talked about that a little bit in the series. Maybe you're coming back to church after a really terrible experience. You're like, why am I doing this again? This is why. It's not because you found the right church or we believe all the right stuff or we're gonna do things all the right ways or we have the perfect setup for your kids or your grandkids. That has nothing to do with it. What it has to do with is that Jesus defines who you are. He's the one that puts hope in your heart and purpose in your future. He's, he's the one who is working out your life and he has got something for you to do every single day you wake up to life in him. He says, abide in me, stay put, hang out right here. Don't, don't leave. And I in you, and you're going to bear much fruit. You're going to have an impact everywhere you go to every person you interact with. And he's going to, he's going to begin to redefine and overflow into all your relationships so that you can experience friendship, fellowship, discipleship in a community of people, imperfect, 
unusual, but comprised and composed by the Lord himself. You were literally made for this. So here we are on this planet. We've only got about 4.6 billion years together. Through life in Jesus, we have eternal life in his name. And we have this short stint on earth where we can begin to walk with him and let him tell us what we're really like, what we're supposed to be, who he's made us, to get our marching orders and fulfill the purpose that he has for us in this life and to be a part of the thing he's doing that is unique on the planet and that culminates in a new city, in a new temple, in a big family, in a wedding feast, with a flock that's led. These are all the pictures he gives of the church. And so maybe you're a Christian and you're like, I don't know about joining a church, being part of a church. I'm just here to listen to a sermon. That's fine, but I got news for you. You are a church member. Whether you admit it, commit to something, serve somewhere, that is who God made you. Join with Jesus. Identity, relationships, purpose. This is the good life that God has for you. And I want to invite you to experience it right here with us because this is all going somewhere and I want us to go there together. Amen? The worship team is going to come close us and I'm going to pray. God, we thank you for this reality. Lord, it can be foreign to so many of us, especially many of us who were raised in church, who have pretty rigid ideas about salvation and the future and how the Bible works and what it says and what parts of it we read and understand. But God, I know that so many people right now in our world are lost in a malaise of identity crisis who are being harassed and who are helpless like sheep without a shepherd, who are being manipulated by their fears, feelings, forcing themselves to identify with or as something that is not even close to what you have designed and what you desire for them. And God, we know that the church is the, the antidote, the good news about Jesus. We're here to deliver, to disseminate, God, your antidote to the sick world. But we need that to be made real in us first. God, I thank you that you are the God who delivers us from evil. You are the God who unlocks us from the chains of shame, sets us free God, you are the one that allows us to be honest about who we actually are and to stop playing games and faking things for the acceptance of others. And God, I just pray for every single person in my hearing, every person that calls Christ Church home. God, I pray that we would begin to walk in what it means to be accepted by you, forgiven by you, loved by you, adopted by you, that in Christ we would begin to know every good thing that you have for us, how you see us, and what we can expect, and the power that we have to walk in new ways and to be set free. Lord, I just pray, Lord, that you would do a work in every individual and that you would build for yourself a healthy and loving and active church that is working to make a difference for people that you love and died to save. God, I pray this morning that your Holy Spirit would heal up old wounds from past hurts. God, I pray that you would give us a fresh vision for who we are to you that you would set us on a journey of discovery as we open our Bible with new eyes to see Jesus everywhere and to see what you're doing to connect us to him. Lord, I pray that we would be people who abide 
who stay put. And as we do, I just pray that the kingdom of heaven would grow on earth, that you would do a miracle in our generation as you draw more and more and more people to life in your son. God, only you can do these things. And so we look to you, but we stand ready to receive it and to be a part of it. In Jesus' mighty name and all God's people said, amen.